or may not be familiar over the last couple years with the controversy over the uh, Washington Redskins football team. Uh, there was there was some fear that uh, it might be offensive to Native Americans. I understand that there was at least some uh, of them that felt like it was a they felt like they had some representation. They enjoyed the Washington's football team being called the Redskins. Uh, last season, they, they were known as the Washington football team, but uh, some have suggested how they could have kept their name, the Redskins, by just putting a red potato on their helmet, right? There's a few icons, I think, that probably would not have done well with uh, uh, them staying with as they were changing their team, ne- team name. No one would have cheered for the Washington politicians, Right or or the Washington bureaucrats, or the Washington IRS agents, no one would have showed up for that. I can think of another football icon or logo that wouldn't have gone over very well. Right? Who who would cheer for the Lambs? Why would why would uh, it not go over all that well for a football hard hardened battle ready football team to be called the Lambs? Because Lambs, they're, they're innocent, they're vulnerable, they're safe. You don't, you don't worry about getting trampled by a lamb, right? We look here this morning at the statement, Behold, the Lamb of God. We look at it, this actually <clears throat> um, this morning, as well as Good Friday, this coming Friday, which we'll be celebrating here at 7 o'clock, and, and also next Sunday at Easter. What does it mean that Jesus, even in his triumphal presentation in the book of Revelation, is the Lamb, the victorious Lamb that was slain? We'll see how Jesus will receive the glory due to him as the Lamb as countless beings that are more powerful than we could ever imagine. Stand and say, as we're told in Revelation 5.12, they say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus Christ is the Lamb that was slain for our sins. Maybe some of you are wondering, why did God call in the first place? Why did he call for the sacrifice of animals in the Old Testament? Well, we, as we studied, as we've been moving through Hebrews, we, we read in Hebrews 9.22, where it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. Now, I'm not, we're, we're all aware of the fact that any one of us, if we shed enough blood, guess what? We are not going to be living. With the blood being shed out of our body, the life is going out of our body. It's the giving of life in order for God to be able to pass over the sins of the Old Testament saints, as we're told about in 
Romans 3. And and, uh, Pastor Jeff will look at this on Friday. What does it mean that Jesus was that Passover lamb? Because that's what God was doing throughout the Old Testament, was passing over the sins of his people and looking instead on the shed blood, the giving away of the life of the sacrificed animal. We're told in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. You see, those, those animals in the Old Testament sacrificial system were paying the debt of death for sin. We're told, again, as I said, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. How is it that God can give a free gift of salvation after centuries of requiring animals to die as a part of the sacrificial system, not so that he would forgive, but so that he would pass over their sin? It's because in passing over, in building up, in in combining all of that wrath over those centuries from the past, he poured it out on the final sacrifice of Christ, his son. And that's what we've been learning about in Hebrews. And you're like, I know, we learned about it over and over and over again. We saw this principle last week when we looked at Abraham being tested. We saw when God commands him to do the unthinkable, to take Isaac, the son whom he had been told, the promise that you are going to have descendants beyond count, and that every nation, every family of the earth is going to be blessed through you, through this son Isaac, to take your son and kill him and offer him up to the Lord. I do have to wonder if Abraham was thinking, okay, Something's going to happen here because God doesn't ask us to do these things. You know, but, but anyways, I'm not going to digress back into Genesis 22, uh, except to remind you that as Isaac and Abraham were, were walking up that mountain, Mount Moriah, the same mountain range that Jesus was sacrificed on, on Calvary, And Isaac is asking his son, where is the animal for the sacrifice? That that Abraham says to him, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And at that moment, if you recall from last week, as Abraham was going to kill his son, God provided the offering of an animal right behind him with its horns stuck in the brambles. And we we read in verse 14 of Genesis 22, as it says up on the screen, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, provide. As it is said to this day, when it was written, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And then 2,100 years later, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. Around 30-some years old, Jesus, so that the law might be fulfilled, he shows up to a baptismal service run by John the Baptist, who happens to be his cousin, to be baptized, to begin his earthly ministry, to begin his public ministry as the Messiah. And when John the Baptist sees him, we read in John 1.29, and these are, this is the verse that everything is going to hinge on here this morning. 
John the Baptist sees him. It says, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sidlow Baxter writes, The Jews were used to providing their own lambs for the temple sacrifice. But here is the Lamb of Jehovah's own providing. Not just for the one individual or for one family, or even for the covenant nation, but for the whole world. This morning I want to challenge you to trust the Lamb provided by God. Trust the Lamb provided by God. Now, I'm not saying trust the lamb that is provided by God, as if it's to say, you know, there's different lambs that you can choose from, but this one is like God approved. No, he is the lamb. All right, this is not like, who wants this one? Don't worry, there's going to be another one coming. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world including us. Jesus is the lamb that has been especially provided for us to have a relationship with God. The prophet Isaiah wrote God's words about the coming Messiah. And it was confusing for the readers when they read Isaiah 53. As it states in verse 7, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was confusing for the for the Israel at that day that 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 were that the Isaiah the prophet was ministering to, not just because it was written in past tense, but but they knew that this was written about the coming Messiah. It was so confusing for them that there became a theory about the coming Messiah, and this was written seven hundred years before Jesus showed up. There was, they, they became a, this theory that there was going to be two messiahs, that there was going to be a conquering messiah and a suffering messiah. They couldn't comprehend a conquering, suffering messiah as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. It makes clear this is a gospel that in, in the gospels that Jesus is the only messiah provided by God. Jesus, the Son, had submitted himself to God the Father in the mission of salvation. And he describes it in this way in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. John, uh, the same apostle, writes in his first letter, what it comes down to in 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 through 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And then he goes on to say, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. You might be wondering, okay, so... How do I get this eternal life? And this eternal life is not just a life that begins after we die and pass into eternity. This is a life that has an eternal quality that begins now and spans into eternity. Do you have the Son? 
In everything that we're talking about here, in everything that we talk about in terms of the Lamb's sacrifice counting for us, that requires that we recognize that we have nothing, that we have nothing that it would allow us to stand before God and for Him to say, that is one good-looking guy. I want him in my family. Because we have sin. And sin taints everything about us. But thank goodness Jesus took our sin on himself and paid for it. Just like I said, the wages of sin and death, the wages of sin is death. He took that payment. He took that wage that we deserve. And as John wrote... To everyone who believes in him. Whoever has a son has life. I write these things that you might believe in the name of the son of God. And that you may know that you have eternal life. We know that when we receive Christ as our savior. Telling God, God I don't want my sin. I don't want the consequence of my sin. I don't want to try to try to make up for my sin myself, I want the righteousness of Christ that is offered to me because he took my sin and paid for it. And he indwells us with his Holy Spirit. And he reminds us that we are his child and that we have eternal life. That's the transaction that happens. Notice John also wasn't hesitant to reassure those who trusted Christ that they are saved. He talks about this as his purpose of writing. The simple fact is is that Jesus is the one and only Christ, the one and only Messiah, and he came as the final offering provided by God himself. He is the one of whom it is said, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. You know, I love pitch-ins. They even taste better when you call it a pitch-in. And, and, you know, we, we try to have a pitch-in about every quarter. And just to let you know, sometimes it requires somebody walking up and saying, hey, we haven't had a pitch-in in a while. So, uh, and it's probably been a while. We're, we're due for a pitch-in. But, you know, whenever you see people talk about the pitch-in, I can't wait for that pitch-in and stuff. And they might talk about Penny's Noodles. Or Elaine's uh, sugar cream pie. We need to have a breakfast pitch-in so that Charlie can make his uh, uh, sausage gravy. You know, they're just like, that item from that person, it is so good. I cannot wait for it. Just as the Jews, hearing John's proclamation, would have perked up. We can place our hope in Christ because he is what God has provided. The lamb of God. The sacrifice, the payment provided by God. And it is good. And in the same way, we can trust that he is going to keep on saving us. 
As he told the crowd in John 6, Jesus himself said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, Jesus is the lamb provided by God because he and only he could satisfy God's righteousness. Trust the lamb, satisfying to God. That's what he is. That's who he is. One writer says the title, Lamb of God, here in chapter of John 1.29, refers to the atoning work of Christ who by one final sacrifice of himself removed the guilt of our sins and opened the way to God, end quote. You know, I remember, uh, I think it was Kix cereal. I think Kix is still around. You know, their, their slogan was mom tested, mom approved, right, for like breakfast. And that's probably like why, why, you know, once you poured the milk on it, it just kind of tasted like cornmeal. But mom tested, mom approved was their slogan. And what we are told here is that Jesus in his person, in his life, in his death is God tested, God approved for salvation. Satisfying the righteousness of God. So why can't God just accept us in our sinful state? I like what else Uh, Sidlow Baxter writes, the very safety of the universe depends on the inflexible righteousness of the divine administration. Sin, whether in Satan, in his angel angel confederates, or in in the human race, is not only moral leprosy, it is an ugly enmity against him who is pure light. In love. The translation here uh, of Sidlow Baxter's quote here is The universe is balanced by the powerful righteousness of its creator. You know, there's a funny term that pops up every now and then in Scripture it's propitiation. Propitiation. It's actually a term from, from pagan religion that was regentrified into biblical theology. It, it, it means like if, if uh, in pagan religion, the deities were always moody. They're always like, okay, they wake up and like, okay, is the sun going to come up this morning? We better, we better sacrifice something to the sun god, right? In, in order to make sure it's going to rise tomorrow or, or this morning or, or you know, there, there was always the concern of what sort of mood might uh, the river god be in. We better, we better sacrifice something to the river god in order to get it on good terms before we try to cross it. But, but uh, the Bible actually stole this term propitiation, which kind of means like if somebody is, has their back turned because they're offended to, to walk up to them and and, and maybe uh, tap them on the shoulder and be like, hey, I'm sorry. All right, but imagine like, like if the perf- person offended is, is a huge giant and the person kind of tapping on them is, is the size of an ant to them. You know, and it's not even registering with them. And that's our problem 
with trying to propitiate God ourselves. But when, when Scripture kind of took this word from pagan religion, the only way it worked and the way it describes God's grace rather than an a animistic kind of like um, idolatry was that God propitiated himself. Only God himself was big enough to tap God the Father on the shoulder and say, for their sake, I'm fixing our relationship. That's what we're told. And I know it sounds weird. Just as the writer, the Apostle John, also liked this word. In 1 John 4.10 it says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God had to propitiate himself. Why, why is, this, is the need to propitiate or satisfy God's requirements so huge? Like I said, it requires somebody the size of the person that's been offended. And without the propitiation that God himself supplied, a person is under God's wrath. As Jesus himself warned Nicodemus in John 3 verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And again, Jesus proclaims in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What's, what's the words of Jesus that needed to be believed? Believing not just Jesus, but, but by believing Jesus, whom God the Father sent, believing God the Father. The words of Jesus were, believe in me as Savior. Trust me as Savior. You know, it made me think of the term satisfying a judgment. You know, that's a technical term. It's a technical term where if one party sues another party and the court rules a judgment and says, okay, you owe this party a hundred dollars. Well, I looked it up, and and technically it says, Satisfaction and release is the formal paperwork stating that a consumer has paid the full amount owed under the court judgment. A satisfaction and release proves that they have paid their debt and prevents those creditors from trying to recover more money from the gem. Again, okay, so this party says, they owe me $100. The court says, yeah, you owe them. You need to pay it to them. So when this party pays the $100, this party that gets paid back shows a document that the judgment has been satisfied. A satisfaction of judgment. And it's saying we're not going to come back and try to get that from you again. Jesus By paying our debt of death, he satisfied the judgment. Receiving Christ as our Savior is simply a matter of saying, 
I want that to count for me. Because it's trusting, believing in Christ and his work being enough. So I asked before, how is it that God can offer free, a free gift of salvation? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As Romans 6.23 tells us, God himself provided the only offering, the only entity, the only being, the only lamb that could die and satisfy the wrathful judgment of God for our sin. And he took it all for us. Christ satisfied our judgment. Or as Colossians, as Paul, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, it says it that he canceled our record of debt. I love these verses, and I'm, I'm kind of um, venturing out a little bit further uh, from uh, the idea here, but, but I love how it puts it. Colossians, writing to believers, we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How awesome is that? Satisfaction of judgment. You know, like I said, this is written to believers. This was written to a church that had received Christ as their Savior. So why is the Apostle Paul writing this to them? He's writing it so that they would stop reaching out for additional things that they thought might make them more acceptable to Jesus. He's saying, there's nothing more that could be done. He was, right, he was able to write to these Christians saying, nothing else needs to be done because the, the sacrifice of Jesus took care of it all. And only the sacrifice of Jesus could take care of it all. And to think that, that some work of ours must be added to the sacrifice of Christ whether to earn our salvation or to keep our salvation, take something away from the powerful work of the sacrifice of Christ. It brings glory to God for you to come to him, not for you to sin, don't, mistake, don't misunderstand this, but it brings glory to God for you to come to him and confess your sin and say, God, I did this. And I, and I know that it needs your forgiveness. But I also know that the forgiveness that was purchased by Christ and given to me has covered it, and it is enough. And please, from this point forward, help me to live in the knowledge and in the power of that forgiveness. That brings glory to God. Do you live as one who has had your debt of sin canceled? If you have no Christ as your Savior, it has been 
canceled? Do you know and consider the fact that you no longer owe God for the wages of your sin? You don't have to go into your room and beat yourself on the back because of what you've done. You don't have to smack yourself in the face. It has all been paid. It was all put on Christ. The only way for a substitutional offering to be satisfying to God, as I mentioned, is for it to be God himself. So lastly, consider the Lamb of God. And in this, I encourage you to trust the Lamb who is identified as God. The fact is, only God himself could bear the sin of the whole world. And this is why the Gospel of John uses eight different titles just in the first few chapters speaking about Jesus. And each of these titles points to God, to Him being God, to being the Messiah. He calls Him the Word, the Life, the Light, the Son, the Lamb, the Messiah, the King, and the Son of Man. And, and in His letter... As I mentioned before, 1 John, John uses that funny term again, propitiation, which means, again, making things up, meaning making up, making things right again with someone. Where he writes in 1 John 2, 2, he, speaking of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible is talking about every sin. Every debt of sin that was incurred by every person living, it has been paid for. Every large sin like murder, every tiny sin like lust, or simply failing to glorify God. You know, you've seen these paper towel commercials where they, they you know, they, they take this paper towel or and that paper and, and their brand of paper towel and they take you know some amount of water and they kind of pour it on it and of course it's it's gonna it's gonna you know get absorbed by the, their brand paper towel and it's gonna like just pour right through the 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 competitor's brand that they compare it to they're, they're boasting about their absorbency god is boasting when he talks about the sins of the whole world. He is boasting about the absorbency of God the Son in his ability, being God himself, to absorb the wrath of every sin of every person that has ever lived or ever will live. He is proud, if I can say that. He is proud of that fact. And that is what we trust in. In trusting Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No matter how long we have been in Christ and grow in Him, we are still called to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, think about... And, and, Scripture talks about different competitions, different sports. And it brings up um, kind of track and field type situations at different times. You know, um, 
whether it be short running or long distance running or crazy people like Ian who like to run cross country, you know, I, yeah, it I makes me nauseous thinking about it. Um, but we'll see as we move forward in Hebrews. In Hebrews 12, when the readers are encouraged to approach following Christ like a long distance race, we'll see how we are still encouraged to do our best to, to, to incorporate the power of Christ as we seek to follow him together. And we'll, we'll see in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, laying aside every weight, speaking of this race, if you will, that we're running of life, laying aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ's sacrifice makes it possible for us to enter that race. And he is the one that we are to keep our eyes on, to behold the example, if you will, of the Lamb of God. But the gospel isn't just what what gets us into the games. The gospel empowers us to live in Christ. Because really, we're not running a normal race. We're running one of those like county fair or or family reunion three-legged races, if you will. You know, where you tie your leg to, to somebody else. We're actually running it with Christ. Because as Christians, we have been crucified with Christ. So we close looking at Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being God, Jesus was able to be there 2,000 years ago, sacrificing himself for us. And he's also here beside his redeemed followers right now, empowering us to run alongside of him, connected to him. We are to behold the empowering help, the empowering force Ability of the Lamb of God. The gospel isn't just what gets us into the games, if you will. It empowers us as we grow in Christ. The one who loves us and gave himself up for us. Let's bow our heads.